Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, persistent engagement in cyber looks a lot like engagement in diplomacy and the military. As you're doing those exercises and maneuvers, you're also watching for opportunities to step into those environments. Your agency's CDO might be the leader of your agency's bot units. I would love to see the chief data officer in these agencies get involved where RPA is on fire, where uh, bots are sort of proliferating into armies. And putting your people through the ringer to make sure your system is secure. We make these emails quite challenging for people to identify because they are actual ones that are employed in the wild. It's Wednesday, November 17th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Agencies have two new cyber playbooks for incident response and software vulnerabilities. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency says the playbooks give agencies, quote, a standard set of procedures to identify, coordinate, remediate, recover, and track successful mitigations from incidents and vulnerabilities. CISA says it used information from previous incidents and best practices to create the playbooks. Two of the Air Force's innovation cells are joining forces to collaborate on technical and workforce issues. Platform One's Chief Operating Officer, Major Austin Bryan, says the agreement with Kessel Run shows the groups aren't, quote, pitted against each other. Kessel Run's Government Engagement League, Captain Dylan Brown, says the agreement spells out the two organizations' common values. The Technology Modernization Fund's considering three projects from the Energy Department, according to the agency's Deputy Chief Information Officer. Emily Sulak says the projects cover IT infrastructure and cybersecurity. Sulak says questions about the agency's working capital fund because of the lack of spending bills from Congress prompted the department to submit the proposals. You can find more details on these headlines and many others at fedscoop.com. The Navy says it's making progress on auditing its books and it's finding some pleasant surprises along the way. Friday's Daily Scoop podcast includes a look at the Navy's books with the acting chief financial officer, Alali Jenkins. The Deputy Commander of U.S. Cyber Command, Air Force Lieutenant General Charles Moore, says the command strategy of persistent engagement is paying off. Moore says proactivity, not reactivity, will keep the U.S. ahead of its adversaries. Essie Miller's principal at Palace Advisors. She's former principal deputy chief information officer at the Defense Department. Essie, thanks for coming on the program. It's great to talk to you again. What does that term persistent engagement mean? What is the definition of it for a cyber practitioner inside the building? Welcome. Thanks, Francis. It's good to see you again. It's about presence. You know, it's exactly what it says. It's being everywhere all the time, being continuously engaged. And if you hearken back to how we used to deploy, we had a foreign presence in partner countries for many, many years. If you've compared this, this is the same thing. It's operating in areas with partners and allies, exercising with them and doing maneuvers with them that allow us to to do things that we weren't able to do previously. What is striking to me, Essie, is that you're using diplomatic terms and military terms and not technology terms. Is there a significance to that, do you think? Well, it's all about operation and requirements. We just use technology as the means to do it. 
I mean, we've said for years now, cyberspace is another domain. And it really comes down to how do we operate within that domain? It's about tactics, techniques, and procedures, just like anything else we do. Mm-hmm. What uh, what makes for an effective partnership in the cyber community? Or maybe I'm thinking about it wrong, and, and the way that you just laid it out is the way that I should be thinking about it. How do we provide... Uh, a, a good partnership? How do we prov- be a good ally in a domain like cyber, the same as we would in any of the other four? Have I been m- maybe thinking about it the wrong way, Essie? I don't think you're thinking about it the wrong way. I suspect this one is somewhat the same and varies at the same time. You know, we find opportunities with partners to help them and we learn and help ourselves in the process. Uh, we pick up lessons that we can bring back and apply to how we maneuver. You know, take, what was it, Estonia. Because of where they're located, it's a great opportunity for us to really learn from them how they operate and to stand alongside them and, and just have a presence to see what's going on. Is it a mistake for people to assume that because we're the United States that we contribute more to an alliance or a partnership than we get back? No, I think some of our partners are just as technically astute as we are. And because of the culture and the location, you know, they've been exposed to things that we may not have or we just don't talk about. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's mutually beneficial. What do we should we be doing? What should we be investing in? Not even necessarily just resource wise, but energy wise and uh, human capital wise. What should we be doing to continue to position ourselves as that effective partner globally? I think globally, we from a military perspective and a nation state perspective, we do well. It's bringing our dip partners alongside with us. So that, and you know, ecosystem is my thing, that we've got a fairly mature ecosystem and that we're we're watching this thing along the full spectrum. Mm -hmm. So not just externally with our partners, with our country partners, but internally, internal to the country with our industrial partners as well. Because it has to be just as important to them as it is to us. Another aspect of uh, persistent engagement that General Moore, the deputy commander of Cyber Command, uh, talked about recently was, uh, this is a quote, getting into the space of our adversaries. What does that look like um, using the concepts that we've laid out so far in this conversation, Essie, regarding persistent engagement? Getting into the space of an adversary means what? I mean, you use the Estonia model, and one of the adversaries that's in that theater of of, uh, thought, theater of operations, is obviously Russia, is named in the national defense strategy. And I just Mm -hmm. wonder what that looks like from a cyber perspective. Is that the same, uh, thinking about it? Uh, the cyber domain is thinking about the other domains or is that different too? I I think it's the same. It's you, as you're doing those exercises and maneuvers, you're also watching for opportunities to step into those environments. Doesn't mean you do anything, but you, you hover, you learn, you take advantage of a door being opened. I'll put it that way. Sometimes you camp out there until you're required to do something. The requirement to do something 
then it strikes me that becomes that that I concept of the alliances and partnerships that have been built becomes um, really critical at that moment. Mm-hmm. And and it could be as simple, Francis, as gathering information, or it could be influencing the technological space where they have a presence. How do we judge success in nurturing those alliances and partnerships over time, Essie? I think that's something the department is still working through. You know, our relationship with the Five I countries are very mature, and there's a trust relationship there. It's what are the question of what other countries do we need to have strategic partnerships with, and what can we offer? And what do we expect from them? And I don't know that the department has captured that yet. Or it could be that they have, and it's not something that we talk about publicly. Mm-hmm. What do you think that ultimately could look like? It could mean us, and the easy one, I'll go back to Estonia, sitting in Estonia. Let's go back to what happened with them. We saw they had a breach a few years back. We have an opportunity, I think, now to follow that back to the source and begin to maneuver quietly, pulling information and reshaping part of their cyberspace environment. That builds, again, lessons, opportunities for lessons and increased activity with countries like Estonia. Essie, there are big issues here, and I appreciate you helping me understand some of them. Thanks very much for your time today. Sure. You can read more about persistent engagement and the Defense Department's cyber posture in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Zero Trust is a culture, not just a name for a cyber structure at the Idaho National Laboratory. The lab's chief information security officer and chief data officer, Rob Roser, explains later on today's Daily Scoop podcast. The Interior Department is just one agency in the government that has bot fever. Andrea Brandon of Interior told you recently on the Daily Scoop podcast about the bots her team has launched. Donna Roy is strategic advisor to the National Security Practice at Guidehouse. She's former chief operating officer at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and former executive director of the information sharing environment at the Department of Homeland Security. Donna, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on the program. The idea of bot fever is not something that's peculiar to interior. We're seeing it all across the government. What do you think the right steps are for somebody to consider if they're just at the very beginning of trying to leverage RPA and marry that to the data they have across an agency to really start to increase productivity? Donna, welcome. Thank you. And thank you for having me on this important topic. I think the beginning step is to understand your processes um, which ones are the most uh, time-consuming, and then really driving into where can I use the bot uh, to fix some of the low-level work that I think I, I can take out of the process. And so it's it's uh, understanding your processes, where the most broken processes are, and then understanding which processes are not um, involving a lot of thought. So bots are really good at if-else statements, very binary. Like, if I can do this, otherwise do that. The best thing to do is start small, check out uh, whether it's working or not, and then uh, learn and try again. 
it really is the ultimate agile development project, isn't it? At least as far as what we've seen contextually in the government, Donna, you, you start with something that maybe you think is going to work, but you're not really sure. And then you can cut your losses pretty quick. It sounds like. You can. Um, people get enamored, though, with having a bot. Um, and uh, when I was at the CFPB, we were a 10-year-old agency, uh, and I had some young staff enamored with bots, wanting to put bots in place on top of a new system development. And I thought, well, that's probably not the right place for a bot. Um, just because you're enamored with them and you want to bring an RPA in, let's try to fix the right problem, not the wrong problem. We can ask the developers to go fix that application. They're still working on it. No need to write a bot for that. Um, so, so let's find where the where the bots really do their work well. You mentioned a few moments ago the idea of understanding your processes, and that strikes me as maybe the most challenging thing for all of this because it requires somebody to admit that the process that they've been using for X period of time wasn't very good. And rather than just digitizing that thing that's not very good, the organization needs to rethink the business process. And that doesn't have anything to do with bots. It's also probably not as sexy, right? It's not sexy at all. It means rolling your sleeve up and understanding either doing a time study on where you're spending your time throughout the process uh, and understanding where you can avoid some steps because they're duplicative or no longer needed. Um, I find RPA is uh, often combined with business process reengineering and change management um, because the implementation of bots makes uh, a lot of staff uneasy about the future of their job. Um, And uh, that's that's a scary thing if you've been doing the same broken process for a long time. Um, That's your job is to actually harness that broken process and you've become really good at it. And what happens if you automate uh, your way out of it? What what would you do? And so change management, business process reengineering and um, and RPA all go hand in hand as a as a consolidated offering in my mind. That's one of the things that I think the interior department did right. They named their bot Bob and made it kind of a. this is my observation, not their declaration, but they made it almost like a cartoon character. Remember that paperclip in Microsoft Office like 10, 20 years ago that everybody hated, but I I got the idea behind it. The idea behind it was let's make this a character that people have fun with and aren't intimidated by. And it strikes me that's where that concept is going to the change management piece, not the technology piece. Am I on the right track? You are on the right track. And and agencies that have gone beyond bots on that intelligent automation scale are often in automating chat. Um, and uh, uh, I know that some people name their chat bots, right? They give them personas, they, they uh, uh, give them a storyline, and then they add them into the workforce. Uh, that helps the change management pieces. Also, ensuring that um, understanding of what uh, comes next for reskilling or upskilling staff so that they're feeling productive. Uh, but but definitely, I like to name my bots. I've even named my my uh, my vacuums that are bots that, that roam around the house. I name them um, just to keep track of them. I will suggest the same thing to you that I suggested to Andrea Brandon of the Interior Department. You should name one of them Francis. I should. I think a, I'll name the the newer one Francis. I love that idea. I love the idea of being newer because that implies younger. I'm not sure it's really true, but I'm going to ride with it. Um, younger, th- younger and smarter, Francis. Oh, God, that's fantastic. Well, okay, so s- smarter. We talked a little bit about your your Roombas before we went on the air, and it 
it seems to me that that distinction is important about where I wanted to go next. What's over the horizon? You told me that your first Roomba was kind of all over the place and you didn't really have much visibility into where it was going. And your second one is more, you use the words systemic, uh, systematic rather, and methodical. And you can see like a visualization now of where it's been in your home translate that to where you it, the government should go or where you'd like to see it go when it comes to scaling or evolving these kinds of platforms like RPA, Donna? Yeah, I would love to see the chief data officer in these agencies get involved where RPA is on fire, where uh, bots are sort of proliferating into armies. Um, because the, the issue behind most of those bots is that the, is there's the data entry or a data integration issue. Um, piling those up means that you're either, number one, building debt. You're building technical debt, and you'll never get around to automating if people are happy, right? And, so, and we know how long it takes to put in place a new financial system, as an example. So these are big projects. And so you want to understand the technical debt. The other thing is I think bots can be used to do a lot of data management, data quality functions much more, much in a richer way than than a user might uh, originally think. And so combining the business use of a bot with some of the CDO capabilities actually has a lot of promise. Um, I see bots being... Uh, used in conjunction with uh, machine learning and deep analysis of data. That's a little bit uh, that happens with my second or third generation Roomba, right? Go, oh, I've been here before. It was really dirty last time I met her. Spend a little more time over here. Um, the same thing will happen uh, when bots uh, are combined with machine learning or large amounts of data of past performance. They can get smarter and get much more effective. Uh, that's how uh, chatbots work uh, long-term. They sort of get smarter and smarter. Um, RPA is just the beginning of that intelligent automation spectrum, and it's it's really a powerful once you sort of combine the business and the and the data functions, you can start seeing real change in the organization. You had two assignments in government that strike me placed you at dramatically different points in the evolution of that particular agency vis-a-vis new technologies and and data collation and curation. Uh, CFPB, as you mentioned a moment ago, the agency was only about 10 years old, lived, I imagine, primarily, if not exclusively, in the digital era. On the other hand, information sharing environment at the Department of Homeland Security, you had stuff that was 200 years old, probably, um, including the Coast Guard data that had to all be mashed up in some cases uh, from a variety of different sources. What's the difference in the way that somebody at a real legacy organization approaches these kinds of things that we've discussed versus the way that somebody at a newer organization or a more technologically evolved organization would do so, Donna? So I have multiple perspectives. I've, I've um, uh, sort of seen the RPA problem from three different positions that have different responsibilities. When I was in the application delivery area around information sharing, I, I, I embraced it and was afraid of it all at the same time um, because it, it offered a solution for the people who I couldn't get to automating their uh, problems and so they could help themselves. And then I was worried about securing it and making sure it was enterprise worthy. Um, I then moved on to be the CIO and thought uh, in a new organization, I thought, why are we putting RPA on top of brand new systems? It, it makes no sense to me. We're, we're not old enough to even have processes that are, that are that broken. But but okay, if, if, if the business thinks this is important, let's figure out how to secure it. Um, but I'm confused by it, and I, I don't know. Um, 
I was promoted to the COO and all of a sudden I was like, let's light these up. Let's put these on fire because I had so many broken processes that were stopping us from being productive. And I thought my job as the CIO, COO was to reduce the friction and increase employee happiness. And if we increase employee happiness, they would be more productive on behalf of the American consumers. And so, and so there's a, a multitude of um, of uh, perspectives. The CIO is worried about the technical debt and securing it and, you know, um, how do you how do you stop a broken bot um, who goes in and wreaks habit um, inside of your system? And the CIO, COO just like, can I make HR better or can I make procurement better? Or my, you know, my business units are yelling at me. Can I make something better across multiple lines of business? And can I unleash a bot or two to make that happen? Um, and so the, it's a, it's an exciting time if you can figure out how to use them, use use them safely, um, not overdo it. I am worried. Um, after about t- 10 or 12 bots, you start building up the maintenance of these bots because the bots are very rigid. They rely on the screens or the, or the format of systems that you don't control. Every time one of those screens or systems change, you have to go back and modify the bot. And so when you get to a larger number, you have to maintain this army of bots. And then that itself takes away from some of, uh, some of the other work that you may want to do. There's a lot there to follow up on. We're out of time today. I'd love to have you come back and talk about stopping broken bots and the maintenance of the bots. I'm imagining something out of Star Wars, and we have to continue that conversation, Don. It's great to have you on the program today. I would love to continue the conversation. Thank you for having me on the program, Francis. You can read more about bots in government in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of The Daily Scoop Podcast, the intersection of cybersecurity and physical security and preventing crashes at that intersection. David Mussington of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has advice on Thursday's show. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Idaho National Laboratory is making zero trust a culture and not just a mechanism. The chief information security officer and chief data officer there, Robert Roser, explains how in a new conversation with my colleague Wyatt Cash on fedscoop.com. Roser jokes the ideas in the White House executive order on cyber aren't bad just because they're in an executive order. Those aspects in the executive order that apply to us really make good common sense. Right. Who can argue with zero trust, multi-factor authentication, uh, improving your cloud stance with, as, with respect to cyber and, and data encryption? So the, prob- the public-private data sharing component of the executive order is much harder and will require a trust that doesn't exist, but that's not something that we're worrying about it. Uh, the requirements, at least for DOE, as I understand it, uh, in terms of what's needed to satisfy the executive order are still being shaped. So we're, we're not really paying close attention to that per se, but many of those elements that I read about were already started uh, in terms of, of executing things. And so we're still continuing on our path. How is the government's willingness to allow employees to work remotely likely to alter how agencies and maybe your agency, uh, how they need to approach identity and multi-factor authentication? Right. So, so first of all, as Idaho National Lab, we're not government employees per se, right? We're contractors to the Department of Energy. Uh, 
we had multi-factor authentication in place well in advance of the pandemic. So our, our, use, our uh, situation is we use HSP 12 badges uh, as part of our, our multi-factor. The, the challenge in terms of the pandemic has been that when we hire new employees, it's not always easy to get them HSPD 12 badges and get them get those credentials cashed. So in those cases, we're having to allow for uh, exceptions, if you will, until we can get them the cards and the, and the caching that's required in order to, to take full advantage of it. What can government agencies do uh, to move toward a more, let's call it a human-centric cybersecurity model? Um, you know, to better equip employees uh, and contractors to deal with the growing threat of ransomware and phishing attacks? Yeah, so that, that's a good question. We at INL uh, do monthly phishing drills uh, with our employees, right? And, uh, and we also require quarterly training of all staff on cybersecurity. Uh, these days, I would say what we're doing is we take actual phishes that we get, real ones, and then, and then turn them around and, and, and use that concept to, to try to spoof our employees. Uh, they're hard. We make these spoof emails quite challenging for people to identify because they are actual ones that are employed in the wild. At the moment, I would say our click rate is somewhere between three and 5%, uh, which is not bad, but you know, it, it, we need to get better than that. Because as you, as you say, phishing is probably the single biggest, easy, the single way in for, uh, for this ransomware attacks. What steps should be taken to help government employees create and manage their passwords more effectively? Yeah, so that, I mean, that's a good one and probably the hardest question you've asked me so, so far. I would say we've been slow at INL to moving away from, from, from passwords per se. We, uh, we currently require multi-factor authentication uh, to log into your endpoint, whether it be a workstation or whether it, it be a, a laptop. Uh, that requires you to have an HSPD 12 card, as I said, that's something you own, and an eight-digit PIN, which is something you know to authenticate. Most of our applications then go are, are effectively single sign-on, and so we give people access to that based on your ability to, to log into that machine. We have not started the process, really, of looking at biometrics or other or other types of, of things to try to eliminate passwords altogether. I mean, that's a, both a technology shift as, as well a cultural shift to get people uh, to, to think uh, outside of, of the, the traditional password approach that we've had. We do offer, we recognize that there are a lot of passwords that people have to deal with on a, on a daily, weekly basis. So we do have a, a, a a tool out there where, where employees can can store their passwords and retrieve them to so that once they they set a good password or uh, they can uh, uh, they don't have to remember it the, the tool will will do it for them and 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 they, it stays in a completely encrypted environment mm -hmm. so that's where we're at we you know we I'd like to get better there uh, as you as you point out right passwords are probably the, the single easiest way to get in most people don't have secure passwords and uh, and it's really an antiquated approach you can find the entire video conversation with robert roser of the idaho national laboratory in today's show notes at the daily the daily scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms if you've already rated the show on your platform of choice thanks for doing that high ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it the daily scoop podcast is a production of the scoop news group in washington dc james mahoney helps me put the show 
show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The intersection of cyber and physical security. That's on Thursday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.